At the same time, I was writing a new book about another president, another era, another political crisis. And I was drawn to the clear parallels between then and now. I'm here at the tomb of Ulysses S. Grant in New York City. The story of his great heroics as Civil War general is familiar to many Americans. But the story of President Grant and his Herculean efforts to keep the Union from splitting apart again, that's not nearly so well known. It's a gripping drama of courage, bloodshed, and statesmanship. And I think you'll find, as I have, it still resonates today. Some of history's towering figures always seem destined for greatness. Ulysses S. Grant was not one of them. No one seeing him growing up would have ever predicted that he would reach the heights that he ultimately reached. His father was a tanner. His mother uh, was a devout uh, Methodist who had much of the integrity uh, and the modesty that characterized her son. Grant's father swung an appointment for his son to the U.S. Military Academy. The spot had opened up when Grant's Ohio neighbor got kicked out. Grant didn't particularly want to go to West Point, but he felt, well, if father wants me to go, then that's what I'm going to do. He graduated 21st in a class of uh, 39. Grant fought in the Mexican-American War, and when it ended in 1848, he married Julia Dent, the sister of a West Point classmate and the daughter of a slave-holding Missouri planter. Grant, after the Mexican-American War, is really looking for his place. He's looking for a way to earn a living and support his family. But drinking got him drummed out of the peacetime army, and civilian life dealt him one failure after another. He tries farming, he tries real estate, he tries a variety of jobs, not always his fault, but never very successful. There was a point when Grant was peddling firewood on the streets of St. Louis just to get some spare income. Grant was given a slave by his father-in-law, but freed him. If you would have taken a snapshot in 1858 or 59 or 60, you wouldn't have really bet that he was going to become this great leader. His fortunes changed with the Civil War. There's a point in Grant's life where he is at the bottom, down in the dumps, and then in three or four years, he becomes this central figure, this icon in American history. At the beginning of the Civil War, there's a desperation for officers, because they're, they're taking a very tiny army and they're expanding it into a continental army. And so his local congressman sponsors him in effect. And he uh, gets to have a, a pretty good sized unit. Grant rose quickly through the ranks. While Union generals in the East foundered against Confederate commander Robert E. Lee, Grant won pivotal battles out West. Shiloh, Fort Donaldson, Vicksburg, Chattanooga. President Lincoln summoned Grant East to finish off Lee, and that Grant did. Well, Grant embarked on the Appomattox campaign, one of the bold, quick pursuits uh, in military history that winds up trapping Lee at Appomattox Courthouse and securing his surrender on April 9, 1865. Lee expected Grant might take him prisoner to be tried for treason. Instead, Grant let Lee and his men return home on their promise 
to not take up arms against the Union again. There was at least some warm feelings that he treated in victory the South um, justly. The way in which Grant sought to encourage Confederate soldiers to be able to take a mule home so they could start farming, uh, officers be able to take a gun home, uh, a real sense of treating Lee with great dignity. And so Appomattox was not merely the capstone of Grant's career as a soldier, but the start of his second act as a statesman. For his generous surrender terms followed a blueprint for the reconstruction of the Union that Lincoln had sketched out in his second inaugural, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Southern states would be welcomed back if they pledged loyalty to the Union and accepted that slavery was gone forever. Just five days after Appomattox, however, a single pistol shot at Ford's Theater changed everything for the Republic and for the general who'd done so much to save it. The assassination of President Lincoln put the nation back on the brink. Grant feared the new president might undo everything gained in the Civil War. That's next. Welcome back to this Fox News special based on my new book about Ulysses S. Grant. Historian William Gillette observed, Appomattox signified much, but settled little. The rebellion was defeated, the slaves were freed, but could the nation permanently secure the gains that Lincoln, Grant, and the Union Army won in the war? Then an assassin's bullet elevated Vice President Andrew Johnson to the presidency. He was a Tennessee Democrat, former slaveholder, and an incorrigible racist who Republicans only put on the ticket to pick up border state votes. Like many who sacrificed in the war, Grant was worried. After Lincoln's assassination, you have Andrew Johnson elevated to the office of president, and all that does is create turmoil in the United States because of uh, Johnson's approach to things. At his first opportunity, a congressional recess, Johnson granted the southern states amnesty and allowed them to hold elections. Johnson uses the power of the presidency to reestablish a southern legitimacy. Now, he's, re he's reestablishing people who have two characteristics. One, they were traitors. Two, many of them were slaveholders. Just like that, leaders of the Confederacy, including its vice president, Alexander Stevens, were poised to join Congress as Democrats in good standing. This distressed the nation's top general. He tries very hard at first to simply be deferential to Johnson, but it doesn't take long before he realizes he cannot be. He looked at it and said, we need to do something to make sure the victory that was won in combat is preserved for the nation in civil society post-war. When Congress returned from recess, incensed Republicans refused to seat the Southerners. But Democrats in the state capitals did reclaim power. They passed a bunch of laws that were glaringly discriminatory and that tried to return the former slave to a status that was as close as possible to slavery. Some of the so-called black codes let African-Americans work only as farmers or servants. Others banned them from owning property, voting, or jury duty. 
Local police could arrest unemployed blacks and send them back to their masters as indentured laborers, all with a nod from the president, who rejected the very notion of black equality. He believes that, that black people should not play a major role in, in American society. And the result is that he does some things that Grant doesn't agree with. Johnson actually drove Grant towards a more radical view about slavery and about race uh, because it became clear that if the North did not intervene, that Southern whites were going to reestablish some form of serfdom, if not pure slavery, where they would have no freedom. Grant found he increasingly agreed with the so-called radical Republicans in Congress, who'd pushed for abolition and equal rights since years before the war. They seized from Johnson control of the rebel states. Under congressional reconstruction, no state would be allowed back in the Union unless it gave blacks citizenship and equal protection under the law. Congress also imposed martial law on the South. That gave Grant enormous power, but made his balancing act even trickier. It's Grant's role as the commanding general to oversee this military reconstruction. Now, Grant did not engage in any sort of open conflict with Andrew Johnson but things became a lot more difficult for him. Johnson wanted federal troops out of the South, even as violence escalated against African-Americans. Just one example, a night raid in Memphis that burned churches and schools. Washington was even abuzz with speculation that Johnson might order Grant to shut down Congress. During this period, Grant's conflict with Johnson is becoming more visible. Grant is seen more and more by Republicans in Congress as someone who is going to defend equality. Both sides needed Grant and agreed to give him an unprecedented fourth star, plus a promotion to General of the Army of the United States. Only George Washington had held so lofty a rank. Washington had been the indispensable man of the American Revolution. Grant was now the indispensable man in the Reconstruction Crisis. Johnson even consulted Grant before he fired his war secretary. Andrew Johnson triggered a battle royale with Congress when he fired Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, which violated the Tenure of Office Act that Congress had passed, dubious uh, uh, constitutional uh, grounds. Congress impeached Johnson for violating the law, but everyone knew the real issue was who would control the fate of the freed slaves. And while Johnson was acquitted by one vote, he was dead politically. Just days later, Republicans dumped Johnson from their 1868 ticket and nominated Grant instead. Grant is a war hero, but in 1868, he's not a political partisan, and yet Republicans nominate him. Why? He's not just a war hero, he's the, he's the war hero. Grant's the obvious leader to become the candidate in 1868. He is the military leader. He is, in the eyes of the people, the successor of Lincoln. And Grant's resolve in the aftermath of the war created the conditions for once unimaginable change, despite Johnson's determination to stop it. The races collaborating on new state constitutions, blacks even making up the majority of some conventions, Alabama giving the ballot to former slaves. And almost 90 years before Rosa Parks, Louisiana approving integrated 
public transportation. He believes he's the only person in American society that can actually make the Civil War work. If somebody else takes it, it's, it's going to fall apart, and we're back to where we were at square one. The Democrats' candidate underscored that. New York Governor Horatio Seymour had opposed the war and denounced the Emancipation Proclamation. And in 1868, he ran the most unabashedly racist campaign in American history. This is a white man's country. Let white men rule. This is what the promoters of Horatio Seymour's are pushing. But it wasn't just racist rhetoric. Democrats also relied on political violence. Terrorizing people, burning not simply homes, but churches, lynching people. In Opelousas, Louisiana, armed mobs destroyed a Republican newspaper office and shot 200 blacks. In Camilla, Georgia, hundreds of armed whites fired indiscriminately into a black election parade. And throughout the South, black campaign workers were gunned down. These are our former Confederates uh, who are saying, we don't actually want to participate in a society where African-Americans have full civil rights and full participation. Some threatened to kill Grant, too. Short of that, he was certain he'd win the election. And he did. Grant was only 46 years old, the youngest president yet elected. He'd won a war. Could he win the peace? Welcome to Fox News Live. I'm Ashley Strohmeyer. A Navy nuclear engineer and his wife have been charged with trying to sell secrets about submarines to someone he thought was a representative from a foreign government. The FBI says a 42-year-old engineer sent a data package to an unidentified country last year. He later allegedly began selling secret information for $10,000 in cryptocurrency, not knowing the person he was selling it to was an undercover agent. The couple is scheduled to appear in federal court on Tuesday. Two earthquakes struck off the coast of the big island of Hawaii this afternoon. The U.S. Geological Survey says the first quake had a magnitude of 6.1. The second struck about 20 minutes later with a magnitude of 6.2 in the same area. No injuries were reported and there is no tsunami threat. I'm Ashley Strohmeyer. Now back to Rescue the Republic with Brett Baer. By the time President Grant took office in March 1869, the U.S. had made significant progress in racial equality. The 13th Amendment had freed the slaves, and the 14th made them citizens. Six rebel states had been readmitted to the Union, with African Americans in positions of power. But nobody believed such advances were secure. Unrepentant Confederates intended to take back what they lost in the Civil War. So Grant faced, in the words of poet Walt Whitman, a task for peace more difficult than the war itself. One of the key hurdles is uh, Southern whites, former Confederates, opposing African-American civil rights with intimidation. Indeed, a new rebellion had been spreading in secret, metastasizing to half a million members. The Ku Klux Klan arises. It starts simply as a social organization in 1866, a group of Confederate soldiers getting together, but very quickly it turns into a violent organization. It evolved pretty quickly into a paramilitary outfit to do all that they could to 
make sure that former slaves would not be able to exercise the rights that were being granted to them through federal law. They attacked at night, disguised in costumes, whipping, raping, and killing blacks. By one count, a single state, Louisiana, had more than a 1,000 murders in just a year. The Ku Klux Klan is not the 20th century version. It's essentially Confederate soldiers repackaged as this group um, right. trying to retake the South during that time. This is a guerrilla war. These are the people who um, really had hoped that Lee would lead them into the mountains and they'd keep fighting. In some areas, three quarters of white men were KKK members. They included law enforcement officers and judges. It was in this climate that Grant, who felt the only way blacks could secure their rights was with the ballot, championed the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment provides that no citizen can be denied the right to vote based upon race, color, or previous condition of servitude, and that Congress shall provide uh, legislation, appropriate legislation to enforce that. What role do you think Grant played in the passage of the 15th Amendment? He was saying to everybody, this is vital. He thought of it as maybe the most important act since the passing of the Constitution. An action that instantly changed the political calculus of the South. Blacks made up 36% of the former Confederacy and were outright majorities in Mississippi and South Carolina. That inspired hope for freed slaves. But Klan members knew if they could frighten blacks from the polls, the 15th Amendment meant nothing. They would engage in awful atrocities. They would murder, they would mutilate the bodies of these former slaves. It was a widespread form of domestic terrorism. But few were punished since such crimes could only be prosecuted by the states, which rarely saw fit to do so. So Congress passed laws authorizing the federal government to prosecute them and created the Justice Department to handle the job. The Department of Justice, he started because he believed that it was necessary to have a unit that would deal only with blacks playing a role in society. But Grant knew he needed not just lawyers to fight the Klan, he needed an army. In 1871, Grant pushes the Ku Klux Klan Act, which he goes to the Capitol personally to call for this legislation. And after it's passed, he uses troops in the South when there are calls for help. In the absence of the Union Army, the power structure of the South will crush black freedom. And the only thing standing between them and being crushed is the willingness of Northern Republicans to use the Army as an instrument. Grant was accused of ruling by the bayonet, but he finished off the Klan. It was a colossal first-term accomplishment. He then pivoted to quell another insurgency inside his own party. Liberal Republicans, railing against what they called Grantism, split from the GOP and nominated newspaper publisher Horace Greeley to oppose Grant in 1872. They ripped the president for scandals involving his aides and wanted federal troops out of the South. Though they had supported the war and the abolition of slavery, they were ambivalent about equal rights for blacks. Democrats embraced Greeley as well, but Grant beat his hapless opponent by a landslide. The Fishers in his party, however, signaled more trouble ahead for the president and the republic. Our special continues 
after the break. Ulysses S. Grant felt vindicated by his 1872 re-election. But in his second inaugural, Grant spoke of unfinished business. The freed slaves were citizens, but didn't yet enjoy equal rights. This is wrong and should be corrected, he declared. To this correction, I stand committed. It was not going to be easy. Easter Sunday, 1873, Colfax, Louisiana. During a political battle for control of Grant Parish, white Democrats seemed ready to take up arms. In response, a black militia moved in to guard the courthouse. Grant would call what happened next a butchery of citizens, which in bloodthirstiness and barbarity is hardly surpassed by any acts of savage warfare. Whites torched the building and opened fire. They shot some 60 fleeing blacks and captured at least 40 more who were then executed. For Grant, it was only the most shocking example of the widespread political violence that warned of a second civil war. Some horrible things are happening in the South. You have a whole series of massacres where uh, in some cases are straight out fights because you have African Americans who had served in the Union Army and had weapons and knew how to use them. Uh, that's the case of the Colfax massacre. In other cases, uh, you had people being killed who didn't have any weapons to protect themselves with. Grant again sent in the military. People say uh, enough is enough. We can't continually keep federal troops deployed in the South enforcing things that clearly whites in the South don't want to enforce. U.S. prosecutors obtained 72 indictments in the Colfax case, but they won only three convictions and none for murder, just conspiracy. The Supreme Court overturned even those convictions. It ruled the new 14th Amendment didn't apply to state crimes by private individuals. That severely hobbled Grant from enforcing black civil rights and voting rights going forward. But more and more, people didn't care. The white population, even in the North, had some misgivings about conferring suffrage upon former slaves. Well, without the support of Northern whites, who are the bulk of the population, you're not gonna be able to sustain Reconstruction. Sustaining Reconstruction became even more difficult when a bubble in railroad stocks burst, triggering a Wall Street crash that shuttered more than 100 banks. The Panic of 1873 was known as the Great Depression until 1929 took that title. The Panic of 1873 really ends up distracting the nation from any further progress on Reconstruction efforts. People are concerned about their immediate economic well-being and then that kind of undercuts any attention that people can pay to other issues. 1874, Democrats are sensing it's time to take back control politically. And in that midterm, there are major allegations of suppression across the board. Put yourself in the place of somebody in the Black Belt in Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, if you have a fair election, you're going to be drowned. Because in fact, there are a lot more African-American citizens than there are white citizens. So the answer, if you were a white segregationist, was don't let them vote. 
And so, Democrats took control of the House of Representatives for the first time since the start of the Civil War. In 1874, uh, the Republicans suffer a rout at the hands of the Democratic Party, the financial downturn. That was something that led to a great deal of discontent. Now, the unpopularity of Reconstruction and Grant's interventions in the South uh, certainly didn't tell. As the economy worsened, even some black voters and candidates grew dissatisfied with Grant. Case in point, the new Mississippi Senator Blanche K. Bruce. Having survived the Democratic wave, he told a fellow Republican he wouldn't kowtow to Grant. Go ahead and lick your master's boots, but don't call on me to do it. Bruce was only the second black ever elected senator. It would take 92 years before another African-American, Edward Brooke of Massachusetts, would win a seat in the upper chamber. With Democrats about to take control of the nation's purse strings, the lame duck Congress quickly passed a new Civil Rights Act. It gave Grant one last Reconstruction victory. The Civil Rights Act of 1875, which followed upon the various Reconstruction amendments, wanted to be sure that in accommodations, in restaurants, in hotels, there would be no discrimination. But Southerners resisted the law. Grant lacked enforcement resources, and the Supreme Court struck it down eight years later. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 is really the last sort of federal legislation before you get into the 20th century uh, that's really making an effort to secure African-American civil rights in any kind of meaningful way. Grant would be attacked both by those who thought he did too little to help black Americans and those who said he pushed too hard for equal rights. But as his second term ended, it would be left to history to decide. Little did the outgoing president know he'd be called to rescue the republic once again. The United States' great gift to the world was the miracle of self-government and the peaceful transfer of power. In America's centennial year, preserving that tradition was President Grant's sacred duty. But Grant knew Democrats might attempt nationally what they'd accomplished in the states, to seize power by suppressing black votes with terrorist violence. In politics today, we talk of battleground states. But in 1876, a number of states were actual battlegrounds. South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida were still controlled by Republicans. Democrats resolved to redeem them with the help of bullets and bloodshed. It turns out to be a year, really, when the nation is back on the brink. It's the culmination of the exhaustion of Northern Republicans and the desperation of Southern Democrats and the gradual squeezing out of African-Americans. Grant received reports of 150 political murders in South Carolina, 18 in East Baton Rouge, Louisiana alone, and many more throughout the South. You're at a culminating point where it's sort of the South's last Southern whites, last desperate stand. Grant still dreamed of equal rights, but hesitated to deploy troops. He didn't have many, for starters. Despite cries of bayonet rule, only a couple thousand remained in the South. Plus, now he was weakened by more scandals involving his subordinates and more Supreme Court rulings that reduced his enforcement authority. If that weren't enough, 
Republicans were sick of fighting the terrorist insurgency and feared doing so would cost them votes in the 1876 election. You see the American public uh, grappling with this idea of does Reconstruction continue? Uh, do we continue to try to enforce African-American civil rights in the South? Um, or does the country move in a different direction? The GOP nominated Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes, but a strong run by Democrat Samuel Tilden of New York made it the most tense nail-biter in presidential history. Tilden won the popular vote. He only needed to win 20 more electoral votes, and he would also win the Electoral College. But both parties insisted they prevailed in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Repression of the vote and fraud had accounted for the Democratic claims to victory, but there was also plenty of fraud that was taking place on the Republican side. If Hayes swept all three states, he'd capture the White House. But Democrats were having none of that. Tilden or blood, some shouted. Grant steps into this recognizing that there needs to be a peaceful transfer of power, even if it is a Democrat. When the U.S. Senate convened to certify the electoral votes, the three contested southern states forced a crisis. There are two sets of electors for each of those states. So what are we going to do? The nation turned to Grant. He advocates for this idea of an election commission to sit down and validate the voting and come to some type of compromise that everyone, Republicans and Democrats, can live with as an outcome of the election. For this commission, there were several members of Congress, Democrat and Republican, and members of the Supreme Court who, uh, who were put on board. There, there were an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, uh, seven and seven, and then an eighth member Although he was a Republican, Justice Joseph Bradley of the Supreme Court was seen as the most independent-minded of the Supreme Court justices. The commission convened in Congress on February 1st, just a month before Inauguration Day. But the counting stopped when it reached Florida. The members, split along party lines, argued for days. It came down to Bradley. He said he needed to sleep on it. Then he voted to give Florida to the Republican Hayes. The chamber rumbled with shouts of fraud, and Bedlam further slowed the commission. Then on February 16th, it gave Louisiana's votes to Hayes too. The DC powder keg was set to explode. There were murmurings about Washington being overtaken by violence, of people who would resist the inauguration of Hayes as president. There were assassination threats against Grant. And it was during this period that Grant acted in many ways behind the scenes. He got the military ready, but he also made it clear to people that we're not gonna tolerate any nonsense, any violence. Still, Grant's worst fear was coming true, a massive lack of trust in the commission. He was haunted by the idea that his policies to unify the nation might have instead brought on this grave crisis. So with just a week left in his term, he gave his assent to a grand bargain, one that would keep the peace, though at a terrible cost to blacks. Hayes essentially promised to withdraw federal troops, to withdraw support from these uh, embattled Republican governments in the South, and really allow Democrats to have this local level control over state politics, uh, effectively ending Reconstruction, you have reconciliation between white Americans at the expense of African-American civil rights. The deal was ratified when on March 2nd, 
Just two days before the inauguration, the commission awarded South Carolina's electoral votes and the White House to the Republican. Rutherford B. Hayes losing the popular vote won the electoral vote by one vote. While Grant felt reconstruction needed to continue, his chief responsibility was to the union, and the union survived, thanks largely to his leadership during those perilous final days of his presidency. He didn't just step aside. He could have said, well, not my problem, I'm out of here. <laughs> he said, no, I, I want to I do the best we can because he understood that the peaceful transfer of power was a huge part of our American story. Grant had dominated the national scene for more than a dozen years, yet some of his contemporaries called the 1876 election his greatest contribution to the republic. Grant's adversary, James Blaine, said there was no greater evidence given of his command, even his time on the battlefield, than the measures that he took during that presidential electoral uh, crisis to avoid the, the violence and the damage that would have been done by those who would have been happy to subvert the system. Even before Grant stepped down, Confederate apologists were rewriting the history of the Civil War and its aftermath. And in this telling, Grant was the arch villain. Up next, an urgent challenge and the final triumph of Ulysses S. Grant. Back in 1860, Ulysses S. Grant was as low as a man could be, drummed out of the army for drinking, a failed farmer, too broke to support his family. But in just three years, with no connections, no famous name, no hint he was destined for greatness, Grant became one of the most important men on earth. No American ever experienced such a dramatic reversal of circumstance. Grant's wheel of fortune, however, continued to turn. And the heroic general and two-term president was again humbled. Grant, after his presidency, does a variety of things, including putting money into a Wall Street firm but the Wall Street partner is a crook. And one day, Grant discovers that all of his money is gone. Very shortly thereafter, he discovers that he has terminal cancer. Grant now faced his final challenge. His main concern was not himself, though. It was leaving enough behind for his wife. He found a way. Mark Twain, who was, besides being a great author, a publisher, approached Grant uh, and made a deal with him to be the publisher of Grant's memoirs. It was truly a race against time. Though in constant pain, Grant wrote from morning until night for 11 months. He finished his book less than a week before his death on July 23, 1885. The memoirs sold more than 300,000 copies. The royalties earned Grant's wife $450,000, equivalent to about $13 million today. No previous book had sold so quickly. There are some uh, literateurs who will describe this as the greatest work of American nonfiction ever written. Grant has a clarity and an honesty that you'll never quite see the process of the Civil War the same once you read that, and you'll never think of Grant the same. While Grant's memoirs aged well, his reputation with historians did not. Following his death, the dominant school of thought became one that voiced sympathy for the rebel South and viewed Reconstruction as a mistake 
and an injustice. Seizing on the scandals, they listed Grant at or near the bottom in their various rankings of presidents. But as the modern civil rights movement grew, Grant's reputation started to rise, and it's risen ever more sharply in recent years. Between 2000 and 2021, Grant advanced 13 places. Of no other president has opinion shifted so drastically. It took more than a century, but Ulysses S. Grant is back on the right side of history. As part of the recent unrest, protesters in San Francisco toppled a statue of Ulysses S. Grant. That saddened me. I was deep into writing this book and was beginning to understand just how long and how hard Grant fought for equal rights for all. I've come to feel great admiration for Grant's courage and wisdom and selfless patriotism at a time when this nation was being tested as never before. Today, America must decide how to move forward. As we do, let's not forget, there's still much we can learn from the past. Thanks for watching.